And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, June 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the newest federal department has some of the oldest information systems. Plus, he helped overcome a crucial data challenge for the State Department. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, if you're on the east coast of the United States, that smoky air from last week has already disappeared. But bigger problems for the firefighting workforce, they have not gone away. The Interior Department and the Forest Service are ringing alarm bells with just a few months left for a temporary pay raise that federal firefighters got. They're warning lawmakers that without a permanent raise, many federal firefighters might be heading for the door. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And let's begin about this temporary pay raise. This was from the infrastructure bill, and how much did they get temporarily? It was from that infrastructure bill, and it was a very significant pay raise, actually, Tom. It was either $20,000 or 50% increase to federal firefighters' base pay, whichever is lower of those two numbers. And that did help with recruitment and retention for the past year or couple of years. But that pay raise, of course, was temporary, and the funding for it through the infrastructure bill will be running out at the end of September of this year. So there's just about, I believe, 14 weeks left until that happens. Right. So it runs out at the end of the fiscal year, basically. Exactly. And uh, the agencies who hire federal firefighters say that a permanent pay solution is absolutely needed before they reach that pay cliff. And they recently testified at a Senate committee uh, hearing for the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Jaylith Hall Rivera is the Forest Service's Deputy Chief of State, Private, and Tribal Forestry. We know that the temporary bill pay increase has helped us retain some of our workforce who might have left otherwise, uh, certainly has brought some new workers into our firefighting workforce. That's why it's absolutely critical that we avert the pay cliff and put something permanent into place. All right. So what are some of the workforce challenges they have? The work is difficult, obviously, and they're not in nice urban firehouses where they're cooking pots of spaghetti while waiting for the latest attic fire. It's not like that at all, is it? No, it is uh, very complicated. And I th- I think the a lot of the problems that we're seeing for federal firefighters or a lot of the ones that they are citing are all intertwined with each other. According to a recent Government Accountability Office report, pay is the top challenge for federal firefighters, but that does tie back to a lot of other issues such as long hours and limited opportunities for career advancement, poor work-life balance. These are all things that are becoming a lot more exacerbated as wildfires increase across the country. And Cardell Johnson is the Government Accountability Office's Director of Natural Resources and Environment. He explained more about why pay is such an issue. Pay does not reflect the hazardous physical and mental demands of the job. Second, that pay may not be competitive with non-federal entities. And the third concern being that appropriated funds supporting recent base salary increases will likely run out this fiscal year. It has been reported that some firefighters are living out of their cars because they cannot afford housing. Duty stations that are more remote may not always provide easy access to basic services such as grocery stores or even broadband coverage raising pay, as well as giving further consideration to incentives could mitigate this barrier. 
And then there's that issue of whether or not they have any kind of career advancement opportunity. Have there been any reforms there? And isn't this something the departments and OPM have been working on? Around this time last year, OPM did work with the Interior Department and USDA, which houses the Forest Service, and they developed a new occupational series last year. The idea is essentially to give a clearer career path for wildland firefighters specifically. As they work longer fighting fires, they can move up in the pay scale and become a little bit more senior level. But the next part of actually using that is is the implementation of it. So they have created the occupational series, but now it's actually going to be up to the agencies to get the ball rolling on that. So Jeffrey Rupert at the Interior Department's Office of Wildland Firefighter explained where they are in in that process. So the development of the series has very much been a, a joint collaborative effort between USDA, Interior, as well as OPM. In Interior, we've been hard at work taking the new series and developing actual position descriptions. The current status of that in the interior is we have sort of our standard while in firefighting positions, grade GS3 through 10 with PDs that are ready to go and that we're beginning to use. We still have additional work to do, especially as you get into some of the more specialized firefighting positions and the position descriptions that will go along with it. Yeah, so GS3 through 10, you're not talking highly paid people to begin with. So that $20,000, $22,000, or 50% of their pay, that is a substantial amount of money for them, you know, in terms of the percentages there. Now, the GAO had other recommendations, plus there's a union too, correct? Correct. GAO's recommendations, we'll start there. They were suggesting things like more mental health support and, of course, you know, hiring more federal firefighters would help with work-life balance. A lot of firefighters, when the wildfire season is is really up up there, they are working, you know, 70-hour-plus weeks. And I think that just makes it very difficult, and it's very tempting for them to leave when they don't see that pay increase being permanent as of now. There's also uh, some issues with retirement benefits. So federal firefighters who work on the front lines, leave, and then come back. There's an issue with eligibility for the early retirement, the age 57 retirement that some frontline employees get. So they're working to kind of come to a resolution for that as well. And the National Federation of Federal Employees, that's the union that represents a lot of these federal firefighters, they've been really advocating for this pay raise as well and some of the other workforce reforms that that Congress is looking at. And by the way, how many people are we talking about here? Interior employs about 5,000 federal firefighters and the Forest Service employs 12,000 firefighters. Yes, so not a huge number of people and they are often supplemented by state and local firefighters when things really get out of hand, correct? That's correct. And a lot of federal firefighters, one of the concerns is that a lot of them are actually leaving to go to the state or local departments instead because they offer better pay and benefits in in some cases. So I think that is part of the concern here for the federal workforce. They're trying to kind of become a little bit more competitive with that and also with less dangerous work in the private sector that does exist on the same pay scale. And the committee had pretty favorable ideas on a bipartisan way about helping out these people. They are quite bipartisan on this issue. And I think, you know, the National Federation of Federal Employees, their president, Randy Irwin, said that that bipartisanship is very promising. And he's hoping that by pushing over the next several weeks before we hit September, that they'll be able to get that pay raise implemented permanently. 
Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you. Thanks. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, he helped overcome a crucial data challenge for the State Department. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The State Department's modernizing program includes a new emphasis on data, what it calls data for diplomacy. And state gives annual awards to employees who advance the use of data to improve things. My next guest was recognized for how he identified challenges in collecting data about foreign assistance. He's the program advisor in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, Lenny Lantzman. Mr. Lantzman, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. First of all, tell us about the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at State Department. It sounds like a conglomeration of several other agencies. What do you do there? The International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs Bureau at the U.S. Department of State is, I would call it, the center of gravity for international criminal justice reform around the world. We work with approximately $1.3 to $1.5 billion every year, congressionally appropriated, in, depending on how we count it, between 60 and up to 100 different countries. And the Bureau really focuses, you know, as its name implies, on an anti-crime and counter-narcotics mission. But over the years, and INL has actually been around since the late 70s, when it started as narcotics affairs sections at embassies and shifted to be the INL Bureau, I think, in the early 90s. But in many ways, it is a place that thinks about what can we do to support our foreign criminal justice partners from national police agencies, national corrections agencies, and down to subnational agencies too. We work with certain country municipal police agencies, but we also work with organizations like public defender organizations. We work with the justice sector. We work with prosecutors. We essentially work across the entire spectrum of the criminal justice system to enable our foreign partners to be better at fighting crime in their jurisdictions so that Americans are less affected by those crimes. And we have a deep and heavy emphasis on a number of critically important things. I would sort of say at the very top, counter-narcotics, fighting fentanyl, the manufacture of precursors, the trafficking of precursor chemicals that are used to make fentanyl is a huge, huge issue for INL. There's a lot of effort both to support foreign partners, work with the interagency, our huge partners with Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, but also at the multilateral level. And so we work very closely with United Nations and other large multilateral bodies to develop standards, not only on fentanyl and precursors, but on a whole range of other areas. All right. And then you are cited for, and I'm going to read here, quote, pioneering work to identify data collection challenges inherent to foreign assistance programming for the Bureau. So translate that for us as to what you do there on the data front and how that supports the mission. I was humbled by the nomination and even more surprised by being awarded. I have to say that I've been with INL in some capacity or other. I started as a fellow for over a decade. I'm a comparative criminologist by trade. That's what my PhD work is in, in criminal justice. And so I've always brought into the Bureau a perspective of what is it that is going to enable our folks, and meaning the people who are actually managing the foreign assistance. And again, INL is a Bureau composed of people who are managing congressionally appropriated dollars to do programs in other countries to, again, make their criminal justice systems more effective at fighting crime. I work in a very unique office, and I would say our office is essentially the think tank for the INL Bureau. It's the Office of 
knowledge management. And it's really the culture of our office that has enabled me to be talking to you now, right? And the culture of the place that I work in is very much thinking creatively about what kinds of tools can we create to, again, enable our folks within the U.S. government, within INL, to better design and implement effective and efficient programming using taxpayer dollars. Some of the things that I work on and I think that I've been recognized for are thinking about, you know, we can go to a foreign partner and we can say, we want your national police to be more effective at, let's say, fighting crime, or we want to reduce incidents of use of force by your police so that you can have better community relationships with communities that you need to work with so that they can give you tips so you can fight crime and so on. And that police agency can say, you know, we actually don't collect any data or information on our use of force incidents. And so one of the projects that I've worked on, and I think that I've been recognized for, is working with the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime on the development of international, not necessarily standards, because international standards go through, I would say, more of a, um, probably like a treaty process to a certain degree, where they're sort of formalized. Instead, I've worked with the UN on developing international guidelines on the kinds of data that law enforcement justice and corrections agencies should be collecting so that they know whether they're actually being effective. And the reason that's important for INL is that what that project is doing is creating the underlying architecture globally so that when we do turn to that national police agency and they tell us, you know, we don't actually collect use of force statistics on who our police officers interact with or the demographics of those people, for example. So we can't even tell you if use of force incidents sure. by our police occur more to certain minorities or ethnic groups more than others. These guidelines are ones that we will be able to point to and say, actually, here's the international you know, baseline for what you should be collecting. Let us help you develop that before we even work on developing sort of programs so that we can actually then develop programs and know whether they're being effective or not. We're speaking with Lenny Lantzman. He's program advisor in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at the State Department and a recipient of a Data for Diplomacy Award. And I guess in many ways you can point to the United States, imperfect as people think our policing is and nothing is perfect. But we have a lot of data to show what the imperfections might be or where the shortfalls lie. So you've got a country that's a good example in this case, at least. That must be an advantage. I'm happy you mentioned that because that is exactly in many ways how INL thinks. But part of the job of INL and folks like me is to act as interpreters and translators of the U.S. experience and contextualize it for our foreign partners. One of the ways we do this is we work very closely with a number of state and local partners around the United States that we think are really great examples and potential implementers for some of our programs overseas. We also work very closely with essentially every federal agency that has a law enforcement or anti-crime function. We work with them and employ them as implementers for programs, as trainers, as models for reform and change. I will say that a good example even of the project that I just mentioned to you on developing these guidelines one of our critical and core partners was the Bureau of Justice Statistics under the Department of Justice. And we turned to them and said, look, we're working with the UN to develop these international guidelines. We want the good practices of the United States reflected in these. And they were one of the critical and sort of core reviewers of these guidelines to ensure that they were reflective, as you, as you know, Tom, of good practice in the United States at the federal level. I'll say one other thing. I don't look towards the U.S. as one model. We have, you know, depending on who you ask and what time of the day and who's counting, sure. over 17,000 different law enforcement agencies in the United States. 
we don't have one model. We have 17,000 models, right, plus the federal and at the state level. And that is both, you know, it's a curse, I would say, to a certain degree within the United States because it's so hard to create national standards that then all agencies implement. But for INL, it gives us this multiplicity of options to choose from to say, oh, hey, this jurisdiction is doing a really great job on community policing. And let's talk to them and see what it is that they're doing that can be generalized and universal, right, to some of our foreign partners. And that's in many ways how INL works. We look to the United States as a just massive well of expertise, but our job is to translate and interpret and find that expertise that is going to be most relevant overseas. And it strikes me that what it is you impart to those foreign criminal justice operators might be in turn used by them to maybe spread the gospel of data-driven decision-making, data-driven program improvement in other areas of their own governments. That's also a great example. We work, again, in dozens of countries around the world, but we don't work with every single agency within that country. There are congressional limits, for example, on to which agencies and organizations our money can go. There are, you know, issues of political will to say, hey, this part of the government really is reform-minded, and this part is not so reform-minded, so we're going to develop, for example, our programming to work with the reform-minded change agents, as we would call them, and use them as exemplars in that government of what you can do when you sort of really advance criminal justice reform, and let's say it's a prosecutor's agency, for example, focused on anti-corruption. It's not always successful. As you can imagine, foreign assistance, you know, work and international criminal justice reform is really, really complex business. That's what my office exists to help the Bureau with. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I'm really just the tip of the iceberg of people in my office that work on these issues. I happen to be recognized, but I have colleagues that work on very complex data projects that I can barely myself understand that are thinking internally, right? Like I work developing these international guidelines. I have colleagues that work on creating internal data architecture so that INL can better understand the impact of our own programs, right? And how do we collect that information? How do we work with our implementers so that they're constantly updating information so that we can see, oh, the baseline has changed. We made a program to have X number of positive interactions between police and the community, and the implementer is showing that it's increased, right, more than we accounted for. What's driving that? What's making that program more effective, right? And the converse, too. We're not being successful, which is, frankly, much more important oftentimes to identify than being successful. Again, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my colleagues in my office that are working on really great and important data projects to help INL better understand its own results as well. And oversees any particular aha moments that have happened where somebody there gets it. That's a great question. I would say, actually, to answer that, I I would bring you back to the example that you mentioned, which is thinking about which of our partners are particularly good at what they do, and then using those partners to be the voice of change in the region. And I think that's actually, to me, the aha moments is when it's like, wow, these partners have gotten really good at doing their, let's say, national police reform. And instead of the United States then going to a country in the region saying, hey, let's recreate this here. Let's use those partners to be models of change, right? And so because they're going to speak, sometimes they speak the same language better than we would. And other times the language is not necessarily like linguistic, but it's the language of change and reform. So, for example, I know that we, INL Columbia, has 
sort of advanced huge amounts over the years. And Colombia is used as a model partner in other countries. And the Colombians will now go and will do capacity building and training in other parts of the region instead of us necessarily going. But they're imparting that same kind of change that we had worked with them over many years on. Sounds like you're really into your work, though. I love my job. I was recruited into INL as a PhD student years ago. And when I was recruited in, I just never honestly imagined that there was a place for some someone like me, like a comparative criminologist with a focus on port maritime security, which was my very initial focus in INL. But over the years, it became very clear like that, you know, there is a place for people like me and it's a great working environment. Um, I would say INL is also known as the I Never Leave Bureau, and I can count many colleagues who have stayed for a long time, just like me. It's a really, it really is a great place to work, and you're always working on something very interesting. Lenny Lanceman is program advisor from the Office of Knowledge Management in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, INL, at the State Department. He's a recipient of a Data for Diplomacy Award, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, swords are drawn for the Homeland Security Department's Inspector General. But first, the newest Federal Department, DHS, has some of the oldest information systems. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Homeland Security Department seems new at a mere 20 years old, but it has a lot of really old information technology, politely called legacy systems. The Government Accountability Office gave DHS a list of recommendations for modernizing, but as you might have guessed, there's still a lot of work to do. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Kevin Walsh. Kevin, good to have you back. Tom, thanks for having me on. Now, of course, DHS is new as a department, but it is a conglomeration of agencies that were mostly pre-existing, so they do have this legacy. Let's define the term here, legacy system. How old does something have to be to be legacy, or is it a matter of functionality and cybersecurity more than physical age? So, fantastic question. There's a lot of debate or discussion on what exactly should constitute a legacy system. Some people would say it's anything older than X amount of years. Other agencies define it as when you stop trying to improve it. But I think probably the best definition comes from our federal CIO, who has said that legacy systems are those that are outdated or obsolete. So they may have heightened security risks or aren't meeting mission needs. Basically, their time has come. They're no longer doing the job, but we're still having them limp along trying to do the job that they once did. So they're like a car with a carburetor. It still runs, but you can't get parts for the carburetor anymore. Right. And some of this is because the government has different fiscal motivations and different capabilities than what you might see in the private sector. In the private sector, the dollar is king and you know, if that new system or if that modernization or improvement is going to bring in more money, then yeah, let's do it. But in the federal government, where we are trying to be responsible stewards of taxpayer dollars, and frankly, our current budget situation is somewhat challenging at times, that's not always the case. So we wind up with these systems that are limping along, doing part of the job that they were you know, intended to do, and we're having to use manual workarounds to get the rest of the job done. And you also found that DHS is well aware of what they are. 
There's a chart here, System 4, System L, and System M. Are those so designated because of cybersecurity issues you don't want to say what it is they actually do? Spot on. So those are systems. We went through a list and flagged 63 across the government, in part thanks to agencies' own identification. And then we flagged the top 10 in no particular order, so there's no significance to DHS having System 4. But those are what we thought at the time, the most critical legacy systems in the government in need of modernization. All right. And the recommendations that you issued to GAO a couple of years ago, just briefly review what those were and which ones have they embarked on, and then we'll get into which ones you feel they still need to get on the stick for. Sure. So we made some overarching recommendations to OMB. We wanted OMB to require all agencies to identify where their legacy systems are, flag which ones may have performance issues, and plan to make modernization. So there's that big picture kind of recommendation. And then in addition to that, we made some specific recommendations to DHS in that report. Most importantly was to make sure that their modernization plan for System 4, the one we looked at in depth, was complete. They have since closed that recommendation. Kudos to them. But in the most recent testimony and discussion, we also highlighted three additional systems that DHS has really been trying to modernize in some cases for the past few decades. Uh, For example, they've been trying to modernize their financial systems. They're on their third attempt in the past 15-ish years. Similarly, they are working on their grants management modernization at FEMA. And the final and third system that we highlighted was DHS's Homeland Advanced Recognition Technology System, shortened to HART, which handles biometrics and fingerprinting. And in each of those three cases, they have issues. For example, their financial systems modernization, I mentioned that this is their third swing at the bat. That one recently breached schedule and performance goals. And so that's a problem. DHS HART, they have problems with their management of risks, mitigation and monitoring, and their grants modernization initiative recently breached their cost. They have a new estimate that's you know almost two and a half times the original. So in total, to those three additional systems, we made 19 recommendations. DHS has closed 11 of them. So again, kudos to them, but there's still a lot of work remaining here. We are speaking with Kevin Walsh. He's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Now, you mentioned the FEMA grants program, and that was the subject of a hearing, and they're aware of that. The financial systems, is that a DHS-wide program that covers all of the components, or is it specific to one of the agencies like FEMA grants? So their initial attempt... This is the one where they're on their third attempt. You know, one of the earlier attempts did try that DHS-wide, hey, let's get everybody on the same financial system. That didn't work. Instead, now they are trying to have individual components move and modernize their financial systems. At some point in the future, perhaps they will move to that singular overarching financial plan. But for right now, they are working on the financial systems at Coast Guard, FEMA, and ICE, and apologies for all these acronyms, in June of 2022, the Coast Guard declared initial operating capability. The key word is initial. Right, right. And they still haven't declared final operating capability. So despite almost declaring success a year ago now, they still haven't been able to you know, land the plane and finish the system. Or launch the cutter, let's say, and get out of harbor. Let's put it, <laughs> put it that yeah, way in the Coast using Guard Using the context. sailing metaphor, yep. Okay, I guess with all of those financial systems component by component, I kind of smell a future platform for application programming interfaces coming up. One would hope that they're incorporating those kinds of plans and lessons learned right now. 
And on the biometrics, that's another type of functionality that crosses a number of DHS components, you know, for, say, fingerprinting or imaging people coming across the border to the TSA's well-known systems. When it comes to the heart system, the biometrics, that cuts across numerous agencies. And so is that also a cross-cutting department-wide functionality, or is that also component-specific? So, so, yeah, DHS Heart is a DHS initiative. As you correctly note, it involves a lot of law enforcement. The problem is their current system, IDENT, originally was operational in 1994. So this is pre-DHS's formation. However, the problems with that system are that it cannot handle well multiple biometrics, so it can't have you know fingerprints and facial scans at the same time. Uh, it also has issues with performance cost, security, requirements. So not all that surprising in a system that's built in 1994. But most recently, in 2020, they had a cost and schedule breach due to what they called an overly complex high-risk design. So this is one of those instances where they're trying to build this massive, massive system, and it's just very, very complex and hard to do when you're talking about all these different players and meeting all of the needs. So, yeah, DHS-wide on that one. I guess they could test it on people who are coming through Ash Wednesday and you could get facial recognition and a thumbprint at the same time. <laughs> Maybe that would really <laughs> confuse it. Maybe, yeah. DHS agrees with the remainder of the eight recommendations that are still open, fair to say? Yeah, and to their credit, DHS is addressing our recommendations at a better clip than average in the government. So these recommendations are also related to our high-risk area on IT acquisitions and operations. So GAO has its high-risk list, and IT acquisitions and operations have been on there since, I believe, 2015. And that includes recommendations to many agencies. So again, DHS is doing a good job here, and they're working diligently. But this legacy and IT modernization issue, Tom, is not something that is going to go away soon or quickly, and it's going to require years and years of work. And just by point of comparison, even though DHS does have a good load of legacy, they are not alone, and some of their legacy doesn't begin to compare with the age and obsolescence of legacy systems in some of the other agencies. That is correct. And I would also add that the full scope of this legacy issue is not yet known. The recommendation I mentioned earlier to OMB about making sure that agencies know where their legacy systems are, so identify them and then prioritize what they want to replace and then actually start doing the work. That first step, identify where the legacy systems are, the implication there is that agencies need to figure out what they have before they can start prioritizing what needs to be done. And so, yeah, you are spot on. There's a lot of really, really old systems out there. I mentioned IDENT was built in 94. That's a spring chicken compared to some of the systems at other agencies. True enough. Kevin Walsh is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, swords are drawn for the Homeland Security Department's Inspector General. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Homeland Security Department Inspector General Joseph Kafari is hanging on to his job by a thread. He admitted in a hearing that he's deleted messages from his government cell phone, which at least two members of Congress say is a violation of federal records laws. They want him to resign. And we get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, he's been kind of under critique 
from the inspector general community itself for conditions that he has harbored in his office. And now you have this going on. What's the latest? Right. Well, the latest is that Democrats had held off for quite a while on actually calling for his resignation. But after this hearing last week, which is before a House Oversight subcommittee, Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey and the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, Benny Thompson, both called for him to step down. And really the main thing was that uh, Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey told me later that this was really the last straw in connection with Kafari because during the question that Ivey had with him, he basically acknowledged that he had decided on his own to uh, delete text and, and take away electronic records, which you know, you would think that the this position, you would be very sensitive to that because he's required to keep those in connection with, for example, some of the internal investigations that you just alluded to. So after this exchange uh, in which Kafari essentially admitted, yes, I did delete these and I thought I had the purview to do this because of my position, uh, Ivy said that was just enough in his view as, along with the, the Homeland Security Chair, Benny Thompson, and they issued a, a very strongly worded message saying that he should step down. And this was really the last thing, uh, which we can talk about more uh, on top of several other things that have happened over the last few years. Right. And no reaction from him at that point that we know of yet. Right. We still don't know if he is going to try to hang on, but I think you can anticipate he is going to try to fight this. Uh, He has been under scrutiny, as you noted, uh, for a few years now since he was appointed under the Trump administration. And uh, he basically says that he's been victimized because of people that have a lot of axes to grind, that uh, Democrats are after him as well. And he's gotten Republican support in connection with his job. So I think that he's going to try to hang on as long as he can. And what are some of the other allegations that have trailed him for low these several years? Well, the first one and the really the biggest one was he really shocked many members of Congress when he told them a few years ago that he had learned that the Secret Service, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, that the Secret Service had eliminated its texts uh, on January 5th and the 6th, and nobody knew about this. And then after they followed up on it, it turned out that his office actually knew about this for many months. In fact, Ivy said he thinks that he may have known it for more than a year. So this was really a a mind-blowing moment for a lot of members of Congress trying to figure out what happened on those days. Now, the Secret Service, when pressed, said that this was part of a regular upgrade of its phones, but many people are skeptical, obviously, given the day that it was right before January 6th and then on January 6th. This could have clearly uh, provided a lot of information about things that former President Trump was doing at the time. So that one really set them off. And then internally within the Homeland Security Department's IG office itself, there have been uh, allegations in connection with sexual abuse and um, a variety of people saying that they were not being treated well and mistreated, frankly, uh, under the law in the department. And many lawmakers do not think that he actually investigated them as aggressively as he should have. And also his own records and his own uh, texts were also eliminated in connection with that investigation. So clearly he's been feeling the heat here from lawmakers for quite some time. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And what about the Council of Inspectors General? on Integrity and Efficiency, the SIGI Group, 
have they weighed in on Kafari? I think they have. They have. And uh, they've noted that he's been investigated for these past couple of years, and they really want to see something done in connection with making sure that uh, this type of thing doesn't happen. And and kind of related to that, uh, some Democrats have actually proposed legislation that would effectively tighten the uh, oversight of the inspector general, which, of course, the inspector general is the person who's supposed to be this backstop for these investigations and for things that are happening happening within the department. So I don't know that it's necessarily going to move forward because uh, Republicans, again, have defended him to this point and said that basically they are pointing the finger back at former President Trump. But it does show how much scrutiny he is under. All right. And uh, he's hanging tough for the moment, then, fair to say. Right. Exactly. I don't know where it goes from here. Uh, that hearing obviously really heightened this to a, n- a new level, uh, especially after everything that had happened over the last couple of years. So he is likely probably going to continue to fight this, I would think, in the coming months. And on the January 6th point, that's something that still another congressman, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, also questioned. Right. This was really interesting. So you had the back and forth between Kafari and Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey on the whole incident about whether or not he had been deleting his own texts. And then you had Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, who, of course, was uh, on the uh, House panel that investigated January 6th. He asked a lot of tough questions to Kafari at this oversight hearing about why did Kafari basically fail to notify Congress, which, by the way, is required by law, that he thought that the DHS effectively was not going along with his requests uh, to get more information from the Secret Service. Now, Kafari said he was working with the Department of Homeland Security and trying to get that information. Why he didn't elect to tell members of Congress, still kind of unclear. He also said that the DHS itself had not preserved records that should have been protected. So, At this point, he thought that he was doing all he could, or at least this is the way he explained it to the members of Congress, that he was doing everything he could to try to get this information and had just failed to give the information to lawmakers. But Jamie Raskin pointed out that that really is the role of the inspector general to protect and to go after the information and make sure that the information gets out. So that was an interesting moment in connection with this hearing last week. Yeah, pretty soon people are going to start routinely searching bathrooms and auditoriums for Records for pictures we saw last weekend. And what about the administration? I mean, they could conceivably dismiss him, right? They could, yes. It's really up to the president whether or not to do this. And I asked Glenn Ivey about this in an interview that we had later. And he said, yeah, it's it's ultimately up to the White House whether they can actually get rid of them. I think they're allowing uh, congressional Democrats to take the lead on this to see whether or not there is enough of a groundswell to actually get him forced out. So I I think we'll be watching this space very closely because the administration certainly could get rid of him at any point. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks for that report. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is warning federal agencies to secure their network management interfaces. Holes in some of these devices have been exploited by hackers linked to China recently. CISA's new binding operational directive tells agencies what they should be doing about it. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more on this story. And Justin, what is the operational directive that agencies are bound to? Yeah, so CISA under this latest BOD, as they're called, is going to scan the networks of federal agencies 
to help them identify any networked management interfaces that are connected to the internet, to the open internet. And these devices are generally things like routers, switches, firewalls, other interfaces that allow kind of authorized users to remotely manage things. And the devices of concern are the ones that are connected over the internet. So CISA is going to help agencies identify these devices, or it's telling agencies to go out and check whether they have any of these devices that are connected to the internet on their own. And then CISA is giving agencies some direction on what to do once they identify those devices. And if they find them, what should they do? The first option is to remove it from the internet and have it connected via an internal network. That's the first step. And that seems to be what CISA is really emphasizing here. And then another option, which CISA describes as the quote unquote preferred action under this directive, is to deploy capabilities that can enforce access control separate from this interface, from this device itself to essentially assure that those who are using this interface, accessing this interface, are indeed users who should be doing that. That's that's kind of a zero trust architecture type approach that CISA wants agencies to take here. But lacking that approach, they just want them to take it off the internet. I guess if they had zero trust, the Chinese couldn't get in there in the first place. I think that's the idea here. And of course, agencies have been working on getting to a zero trust architecture, but agencies and organizations across the world are really kind of in the early stages of adopting that new security approach. And what do we know about this Chinese-linked hacking group? What's it doing? How is it exploiting these interfaces? And is CISA aware of this group before? Yeah, what's interesting is this directive is coming a little less than three weeks after Microsoft first described how this group called Vault Typhoon has allegedly targeted critical infrastructure in Guam and elsewhere in the United States since mid-2021. And it's been using these networked management consoles to essentially get access to these critical infrastructure networks. CISA and several other agencies later followed up that initial Microsoft blog post with its own blog post, essentially saying, yeah, we're seeing this too. We want you know, critical infrastructure groups to be aware of it. I spoke with Matt Hayden, a former CISA official and current executive at General Dynamics Information Technology about how, you know, CISA has already been aware of these types of vulnerabilities, but Vault Typhoon really brought it to the forefront. So they started to work out what the the details may be on this a couple months ago and started doing some querying of the different networks to see where these devices were. And then Vault Typhoon happens. And we start to see management consoles for security devices getting directly abused and attributed to the Chinese government by the federal government publicly. And were any agencies already onto this exploit because they might have gotten that alert from Microsoft before CISA did? And are they getting after it at all? Do we know? We don't know if any agencies were privy to the Vault Typhoon exploitations that Microsoft first publicly attributed prior to that happening in late May. What we do know is that Microsoft says Vault Typhoon gains initial access through internet-facing FortiGuard devices made by the cybersecurity firm Fortinet, which many agencies are familiar with and do business with. The company has already released patches including the one that was reportedly accessed by Volt Typhoon uh, last year, actually. And those those vulnerabilities are on the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog that agencies have to patch. But as Hayden pointed out to me, this isn't about patching. Even if you do patch your devices in this case, the binding operational directive tells you to take an additional step. 
beyond the patch. No matter which application is next, whether it be a Fortinet vulnerability or something else that adds to that non-exploited list, we want to make sure that we have a buffer of conditional risk is met. We're buying down the risk of that cascading. At this point, the federal government is basically saying, don't connect any of these to the wild, wild west, just because there are going to be unknown vulnerabilities that will come in the future to these, and the exploit is too great, so we can't have that happen. Well, of course, you shouldn't not patch. If you get a patch from a vendor, you have to do that. I mean, that goes back to time immemorial. And I guess my other question is, all right, so you take these devices off of the public internet. They're still connected to your net in a way that you can control your network. So are they really off the internet? or they're just a couple of more hops away from the internet than they were before. I think the point here is uh, that while there's always kind of a way to tunnel in through the internet to different parts of a, uh, an organization's network, you can't have such a, a high priority uh, control, essentially controlling interface that allows you to touch several different devices and, and, uh, and, and users on your network publicly accessible through the open internet that's that's essentially what CISA is saying here unless uh, you have these zero trust access control type controls in place so that you can really be sure that who is who whoever is using this application is who they say they are and should be using it and in the meantime this binding operational directive means you got to do it if you're a civilian agency that's right I should have mentioned that so essentially CISA is going to scan the federal networks for these types of devices. And if CISA identifies one or if an agency identifies any of these devices, then, then an agency has 14 days to either take it off the open internet and or apply these zero trust access control decisions. And so that's the timeline that agencies will be working on once these devices are indeed identified. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 